Welcome back to SIVO Sisters, where we demystify and diversify the field of anesthesiology all within a duration of an anesthesia break. Thanks for joining us. Last week, we discussed my massive mindset shift from thinking that I can only just be a worker bee to actually stepping up and challenging myself in a new role and capacity. Check that out, y'all. It took a certain set of experiences to really get me there. So don't worry if you're in a space where you're like, well, I don't see that happening for me. I don't see a mindset shift coming. Oh, don't worry. The universe has some surprises for you (laughs) that will begin to change the way you think. Let my story help you recognize that uh, your change is coming as well. Don't be surprised. Don't take it personal and realize that it's all for your good. (laughs) We're continuing on with my journey this week. We're going to talk about the challenges of being a woman physician, the dangers of having a title that is all bark and no bite, (laughs) and lastly, the health crisis that turned into a blessing. We are going to jump right in to discussing the need of having conviction. Please enjoy. So it's having that conviction. And when you have conviction, other people feel that. And then they have that conviction in you as well. So it really starts with us. Think confidently. It's so different than what we usually may hear of, you know, fake it till you make it act this way, talk this way, but it really does start with mindset. Thinking confidently affects how we see the world and therefore how the world sees us. You talked about, you know, being able to have some kind of evidence, or at least that's how I thought about it. Would you recommend that people are able to get evidence from people that says, Dr. Peterson did this for me, or I got this impact because of an initiative, a project, her research helped, like, what did that look like? So that, you know, what tangible things can our, can our audience do to help them think confidently and therefore speak with confidence? Patients will say all the time, um, oh, you give me such great care. Oh, you know, she's great. Da, 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 da. And never once did I say, oh my gosh, let me capture that. Having some sort of repository for that kind of feedback is key because, you know, all of us are going to have moments where we forget that we're actually kind of good at what we do. We all have moments where we want to beat up on ourselves and having that repository reminds us and it reminds others that, no, you, you, you got it. It never left you. It's okay to make a mistake. That's how we learn. When I was in that mindset of just all the good feedback I got, that was what was dismissed. Like, you know, yeah, I'm supposed to do great work. That's what I'm hired for. That's what I'm supposed to do. It's not until you get the negative things that now people want to pull you to the side. For me, what that negative things looked like was, well, so-and-so didn't like that you didn't say good morning to them. And I'm telling you, it's just that small. And it's like, excuse me, I'm here to serve this patient. Was was, was I rude? Did, what happened? It was the absence of me being overly gushy. It wasn't that anyone felt that I was flagrantly rude. She's so direct. And it's like, yeah, what's the problem? If I was a guy, would you have said anything? No. If anything, you would have tried to dismute him. But instead, as women... That, that's another piece that we often 
come against is women don't know how to take authority from other women. So it's just a odd line. Sometimes you encounter support staff who are women who they come to you and they're like, girl, you know, like, how's it going? And I made this and I brought in some extra for you because I remember you told me A, B, C, and D. Um, But I have to say, like, majority of the time, I come a lot across those women who are like, she's cold. I'm just existing, y'all. My former division chief has said, whenever you approach anybody, you're supposed to say, oh, please, please, with cherries on top, like overly gushy so that people can warm up to you. But if that's inauthentic and not your style, I say, be true to you. I don't think anyone should operate outside of their integrity. Integrity is a big word. And that's partly because so many people have a different approach or understanding of what that word is. We have so many words, they have a clear definition. You can go into, pick a dictionary of your choice, and it'll tell you what the meaning of that word is, which denotation, this is what this word means. There's also the connotation of a word. So socially, spiritually, religiously, financially, what have you, a particular word or phrase can have a slightly different meaning than what the denotation or the dictionary-based definition of the word is. And I think that also may apply to integrity because from what you're saying, you mentioned authenticity. So for you and for many of our listeners, integrity and authenticity may go hand in hand. How can you be the person you're supposed to be if you are not authentic to yourself, if you're lying to yourself, if you're denying your core values. Now, when I hear that, then I think, okay, well, what about another side? Because it's multifaceted. There's probably infinite number of sides. Another person may think, well, integrity is I'm not flat out lying about something I did or something I said. So anything else, integrity doesn't apply. And I think that's a very interesting point because when we are in these workplaces, inpatient, outpatient, what have you, we come across these conflicts where we wonder, how does this person not understand that I can't do that? How does this person dare have the audacity to ask me to do this thing without pay, without a title, without whatever the things, insert the the situation of your choice. And it comes down to these very natural conflicts because we're all perceiving our lives and our words and our meaning and satisfaction completely differently. So then the question remains, well, for me as the anesthesiologist, what is the right choice? Am I being true to myself, being authentic, having integrity? These are core values that I treasure. And then would I put in jeopardy my financial security and stability or social politics? And that conflict is very heavy for a lot of people because it comes up in one way or another. Our personal relationships, even if it's professional, absolutely impact our life. So I want to bring it back to the story you mentioned when you had left Texas Children's and you took on that directorship role and you talked about your spidey senses. So I think that this is this is kind of similar, but I'd love to hear from you. What were your spidey senses? What do they feel like? What do they look like? It came out as, as I, I'll never forget it. I was waiting for my ID badge 
to be printed out, okay? I just took the picture for my ID badge and I got the flutter that said, mm. it just was an internal flutter. And I remember looking around in the ID station where the security office is. And I remember there was a window. I looked out of that window and that was where the front desk was, where patients came in for going to their appointments. Now, the, every hospital does their security differently. I've been at many different children's hospitals. One unique place about this hospital was that the security just felt, it was almost like airport style. It wasn't a, oh, let me serve you. Let me show you where to go. It was, good morning. Have your badges out. And you're just like, good gracious. This is the scene that is playing out before me as I am getting that ID badge, as I am feeling the flutter. And I'm like, oh, well, it's just day one. Let's see how this goes. As the weeks and months progressed, I had the title, but I had no hiring or firing capabilities which means that I can spot underperformers in my group. And all I could do was talk to the manager about it, who then may meet with them on the side, who may put it in the record. And when issues came up, like prior authorizations had to be done or patients to see our psychologists, and insurances need to be ran for all different reasons. There were people on the team that were not doing it to the timeliness that we needed it done. Families were calling in like, when is this? When is that? And, and stuff wasn't getting done. And so here, I, here it is. I'm the director, right? But I have the title, but I don't have the authority to solve the problem. And that was the biggest issue. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm getting blamed, but you're not giving me the power to actually solve it because I have no hiring or firing capabilities. So that was like a big, you know, being between a rock and a hard place. Then the the other pain train person that was there had left, okay, left um, many different reasons. So I was the only one there who was pain trained. Reason why this is relevant is because there are other individuals higher up in the organization that are trying to tell me how the clinic should be run. That's a problem. The reason being <laughs> is because the way pain is done in children, it is inherently, it has to be multidisciplinary, meaning that you have to have your psychologist there, your physical therapist there, um, because pain hits every aspect of life. And you have to have people there that can help support patients through all the aspects pain hits. That means that our appointments are longer. They're like, initial appointments are like 90 minutes. If I'm seeing a new patient by myself, I could maybe do it in an hour. There are other departments who could see their patients in 15 minutes. Right? And so they're comparing their practice where they only got 15 minute appointments to mine, where it's like, oh no, baby, you can't give these patients 15 minutes. They are crying for the first 15 minutes. Okay. Like this, this is severely, pain has severely impacted their lives. Okay. They're coming to you in a pile of ashes. You can't rush them along. 
So it was a constant battle to go back and forth and be like, no, we cannot do that. That is not what is going to happen here. And eventually it's the noise of others quieted down because guess what was happening? Their patients were going back to them and saying, oh my gosh, thank you so much for sending me to the pain clinic. For the first time in a long time, I feel taken care of. I feel supported. I feel like I can do this. And so what ended up happening? More patients are being referred to us, which it's a good thing if you're if we had a well-oiled machine as far as support staff. But if I already told you that we have some underperformers there where insurances aren't being ran timely and they therefore patients aren't getting on the schedule timely, it just leads to patient complaints and just getting into the clinic. So um, that was the big, that was that flutter that I didn't know how to interpret until months down the road that, oh, so, so that was that, what that intuitive sense was telling me that, uh, you're gonna have, uh, yeah, you're going to be charged with a problem and blamed for it, but then you're not given the authority to solve it. And then too, I didn't like the phrase given the authority. Um, you know, we're problem solvers. Uh, If there is an issue and I can do something, I will do something if it's in my capacity to do so. But the organization is wrapped in so much bureaucratic nonsense that to do anything that, even if it's in the, I mean, it's in the name of the patient, it needs to be done. It is really hard to do stuff, you know, like our patients needed social work. And for some reason, the organization did not hire enough social workers. What am I going to do with that patient who has chronic pain really due to the fact that they haven't had a good night's sleep because there's gunshots outside their window and they don't feel safe. Having my hands tied. You know, when people tell you, I've been here for 20 years as a way to try to pull rank on you. Did you really advance in those 20 years or are you living the same year 20 times? Because that's what everybody is doing when they tell you, I've been here for 20 years. I've been here for 10 years. This is the way we always been doing it. Don't let that in any way silence you because they just live in the same year, 10 times, 20 times. And that level of stagnation, you should never want for yourself. Then the question becomes, okay, well, Alicia, when did you finally decide to make that transition? This is something that I've I've never worked for for myself. Um, (laughs) like I never, I never saw myself as being someone who could, um, you know, just to generate revenue. Like I, like, Oh, you know, um, my talents and skills are monetizable. I, 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 it was a completely different way of thinking and shifting, um, which thankfully listening to was not only Dr. Una's podcast, but then I learned of entrepreneurs on fire and now I'm listening to a lot of Alex Hormozy, uh, amazing by the way. And I, I see that it's like, wow. So as I'm building up this portfolio and learning how to think and and how to package and position, I also am like, well, I'm so close to getting associate professorship. You know, like, let me get this real quick. Uh, 
because, you know, us in medicine, we love our titles and any little extra thing we could put by our name. It's like, yeah, I could change my little email signature. So I, I did stick around and I got that. And then I had a health crisis. And that is what made me tender my letter of resignation. And I always talk about this on the podcast is working out how important it is to get exercise in. Yeah, everybody talks about the physical benefits and the aesthetics and, oh, you can get flat abs and all these things. But to me, the real value of exercise is the mental piece because it forces you to confront your own demons by pushing yourself a little further than you thought you could. And that practice helps us a lot with our challenges day to day. Um, and so it's that it's that long suffering, it's that mental fortitude, it's that push that really makes it so I'm able to handle stuff that that workplace was bringing on me. And it wasn't enough. I'm walking to work, I couldn't even breathe. Like it was so weird. I would take three steps and then I'd have to like pause and take three steps and pause. And previously, I mean, I was running a mile and a half to go to the gym and back. Like I, it, this was just so weird. Now that, that whole three steps and pausing and to breathe, that slowly developed over a course of a few weeks. But I ignored the breathlessness because I was still working. This particular day, I was like, maybe I'll get an inhaler from the Pixis and try that out. And that didn't work. And then I called my ER friend. She said, you need to go to the ER. Like, this is ridiculous. I go to the ER and they take a chest X-ray. I had fluid in both my pleural spaces. So not in my lungs, but in the cavity outside my lungs. So then here comes rheumatology. <laughs> And I am diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. And then they're asking me about family history and all these things. And I'm like, uh-uh, I know what did it. It's that workplace. I knew it. I knew it. Because for the past few months, every time I walked into that place, it felt like I was in an abusive relationship. I was only in it for the kids. I did not feel valued in that space at all. I would go into that clinic and sometimes, the, like I said, the trash wouldn't be taken out. Um, the paper that you use to put over the exam table, all empty. Construction would be going on in the middle of the clinic day. Nobody warned me. Nobody told me anything. And now patients have to yell to share with me what's going on with them because of stuff like that. It's like I felt so completely disrespected in that space. And yet I was going back day after day. And I'm, I think the universe just said, you know what? This is insane. Enough. Enough. And lo and behold, this, I call it a health crisis, but it really is a blessing because the insanity needed to stop. And I kept rationalizing okay, well, when are you going to tender your resignation? Okay, well, after I get my associate professorship, when are you going to do this? Da, da, da. You know, like everything kept getting pushed back. And this was the moment where I came face to face with, no, we're doing this and this is happening now. On my contract, it says three months notice. So as I was, like I had gotten admitted because I had to get my effusions tapped. Like I got one side tapped and then they waited a day and then they and then I got the other side tapped. 
And while I was in that hospital, I was like writing my letter of resignation. I ended up having to get tapped like multiple times because the flu we kept accumulating. And I That organization, July of 2023, gosh, the last time I got tapped was, it's been a long time. So it's it's been such a blessing and amazing. And it just confirmed for me that I really had to leave that place. Now, briefly, we'll talk about the TED Talk. The TED Talk could not have happened at a worse time for me medically. It could not. I had wanted to do a TED Talk. It was one of those bucket list items. And I'm so excited. I did it May of 2023. Um, It's on YouTube. It's called How Chronic Pain is Like Falling in Love. I needed to have... I needed to get another tap. The fluid had accumulated on one side. I knew I couldn't though, because you can't fly for two weeks after you get tapped because, you know, concern for pneumo and all of that. Here I am sort of breathless and I'm like, well, I'm not missing this TEDx. Like I've prepared, I memorized, I also got coaching to, you know, do this TEDx and I'm like, we're doing it. So I fly out there as I'm delivering the talk, if you watch it, you'll see like I am breathing pretty fast. People who have heard me talk before are like, yeah, like what's going on there? You know, it's kind of, but people who've never heard me speak before are like, oh, I just thought maybe you were nervous or I don't know. It didn't strike me as being significant. I was doing it. I was like, prescribed steroids at the time. I felt like my face was kind of swollen. I was already breathing hard because I needed to be tapped. It was a crazy. And then I was nervous as all get out because even though you practice, you're not used to a camera sort of swirling around you. And you're not prepped for how black that room is. It is dark. So it's like, I'm trying to look at the audience and then this camera's flying around and I'm having problems breathing already. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> I was like, dear God, I guess, I mean, if this is when you wanted me to do the TED Talk, this is, this is it, you know, that's what we're doing it. But man, oh man, I just... I I, t- I walked away from that experience saying, I got to sign up for another TEDx. Now I got to sign up to do it right this time, right? Because like, this is crazy. But um, but yeah, so it really was a health crisis, which really was a blessing in disguise that triggered me to leaving. I left July 14, 2023. My dad, who, oh, who had health issues, really bad congestive heart failure, all of that, he was dying. And so he finally passed August 19th, 2023. So everything happened in a time that it really needed to because I got time to spend with him, you know, mom. And after he passed, you know, she spent some time with us. So it was big. It was like, it was a lot going on. And I could have never foresaw, you know, all of these transition points happening. I will also just like to quickly underline that all while I'm going through my difficulties breathing and stressed and never once did any of those higher ups at the hospital be like, you know, are you okay? You know, like nobody, nobody is mindful of you. So I just say that to say for all of us who are like, oh, well, you know, I, I got to do all this work for the, the patients. It's, you know, it's, I got to do this. I got to do that. It's like, no, you don't. 
No, you don't. You have to protect yourself first and foremost, um, because if I can't breathe, I can't talk to anybody. I can't teach. I can't prescribe. You know, like everything is shot. It all begins with you. And I think that for a long time, and I mean, all of us do this because you underwent medical training. We give up all of ourselves. And we do that with the thought, the hope that maybe we'll be able to take back ourselves. (laughs) Like it's just temporary (laughs) until you see that it's not. And and you have to make the shift. Okay, wordsmith. Uh, okay, we all know that this this is what we're thinking because you're putting into words these really huge existential conflicts that we need to address throughout our lives, sometimes multiple times. So when you mentioned you wanted to do the TED talk again to get it down right the way you wanted, I said she's such a doctor. <laughs> We, we want to be excellent and we take, we want to take, we do take pride in a job well done, at least for some of us. So when you said that, I thought that was hilarious because I understood that concept. And when you talk about breath is life and how there were some people around you who definitely interface with you often enough that you would think they would be able to notice differences and how they did not understand that your life may have been in jeopardy because there was something different about how you were doing things, how you were presenting yourself. And then I thought about when you said in your TED talk, the people who knew you well could tell that there was something off about you. Whereas for anyone else who was, you know, seeing you, perceiving you for the first time, they had no idea that you were struggling with your breathing. And to me, that really highlighted the importance of self-advocacy in the way of letting people know what's going on with us in real time because so often and myself and other people included we're quite literally experiencer experiencing our own world for ourselves through our own eyes and for good or for bad right or wrong we do not know we may not have the capacity to even address when we notice that someone else is off or not like themselves and definitely not to absolve anyone who should know better because when you know better, you do better. And for me, when you said that, it just really highlighted the importance in being courageous to share what's going on with you in real time because that expectation that we have of others to be treated as we would want to be treated is so much harder when we cannot read each other's minds or for some people who are unable or unwilling to you know, observe and use their senses. But that's another discussion for another time. So that I thought was really powerful. As you know, at Sivo Sisters, we demystify and diversify the field of anesthesiology all within the duration of a what? Anesthesia break. We're coming up on time. Break is probably over. Join us next week as we continue this thrilling conversation. Ta-ta! I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sivo Sisters. If you love this episode as much as I did, head on over and rate and subscribe so you don't miss out. New episodes drop every week on a Monday because we all can use a little something, something to get us through the week. Am I right? I'd love to hear more from you on the topics that you want to hear. So let me know in the comments. This is Dr. Peterson signing off. See you next time.